Today, uh, I complete uh, the message began last Sunday on the overcomer promises. And in doing so, we conclude the series, What Jesus Looks For in a Church, which has been a study of Christ's messages to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So uh, let's begin with a uh, review, and then we'll just keep on going through to uh, complete uh, the message. I hope you uh, picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes. I hope you appreciate the fact that I'm giving you a break. You notice you don't have to fill out in any blanks. Uh, But don't get used to that. I'm not going to let you get lazy, and uh, we'll return uh, to that. But I thought I'd give you a a break uh, this Sunday. You will remember Christ gave an overcomer's promise to each one of the seven churches. So look at the introduction in your notes, and again, this is part of our review, which emphasizes the purpose of the overcomer promises. The overcomer promises are given to Christians who conquer life's trials and temptations to demonstrate their devotion to Christ. The promises accomplish two things. First, they provide the overcomer confirmation of salvation. Their overcoming does not earn salvation, but of course gives proof of their salvation. Second, and most important, they provide the overcomer encouragement to remain faithful to Christ when encountering adversity and persecution, knowing a glorious future awaits the believer. All the references to blessings in the afterlife and eternal rewards make the clear statement to the believer, a better day is coming, which should provide hope and strength to persevere today. Uh, Look at the next couple of uh, verses in your notes that emphasize this very point. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let me suggest that you circle four words in those couple of verses. Circle the word affliction. Circle the word producing. The word glory. And then the word look. We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The word affliction, producing glory, look. You know, that word affliction literally means intense pressure uh, to the point of agonizing pain. Uh, We often use the word stress. And living in a sin, a fallen, cursed world is a life filled with stress. It's a life filled with pain and suffering in so many different levels. And that's the reality uh, that we face each and every day. But notice the word producing. 
That affliction, the suffering, uh, the trials, the tragedies, the hurt, the wounds we experience in this life provide us an opportunity to produce something as we respond properly to the affliction, as we respond properly to the suffering in submission to God uh, to learn the lessons that He has for us. And what does it produce? Glory. And when you see that word glory, simplest definition I can give you is it's always a visible manifestation of God. That's why we said that Jesus is the glory of God, because He put on display who God is. So, God desires, as we experience affliction in this life, that it produce something in us, that it produces first brokenness, where we uh, see all resistance to God ended, where we become tender, where we become pliable, moldable in His hands, where Christ, of course, then can be formed in us to be displayed through us. And what's the motivation? We look at the things which are not seen but at the things which uh, are not, not at things which are seen, but things which are not seen. And that's where we come to these overcomer promises. They provide the motivation for us to turn to God in our affliction, to learn the lessons that He has for us, to go deeper into depths of Christ-like character, knowing that we have a wonderful future that awaits us, wonderful rewards. Look at the quote from Richard Mayhew, who was past dean of Master's Seminary. He says, whatever price the overcoming extracts in this life, the cost will be nothing compared to the incalculable benefits in eternity. So the eternal rewards offered for faithfulness to Christ far outweigh the temporal gratifications this world offers. Therefore, now listen very carefully to this next sentence. The willingness to forsake temporal gratification and wait for eternal reward is one of the greatest evidences that a person has truly been saved. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 6. Not in your notes, but listen to these two verses. Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 6. Now, faith is the... What's the rest of it say? The assurance of things hoped for. That literally means that it is the inner confidence that we have of a future reality. A future reality promised by God. Faith's object is God. And we put our confidence in God that faithful is He who promises who also will what? Will do it. So faith first is that inner confidence of the future reality promised to us by God, but then that verse goes on, and the conviction of, not, of things not seen. That word conviction is our outward response to that inner assurance that we have. And what is our outward response? It's that willingness to forsake temporal gratifications, to turn from temptation, remain faithful to Jesus, because we believe there is a future reward. And that's why verse 6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he what? Is. That he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. 
That's true faith. It's not just giving assent to certain truths about Christ. No, it's an inner assurance, confidence in the future reality that God has promised me, that gives me conviction today to respond in a manner in which I turn from temptation. I turn from the temporal gratifications offered by this world to wait for my future reward, to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at the overcomer promises now uh, given to each uh, church. First, Ephesus. The church who, of course, left their first love. And, and of course, much of this, um, hopefully, if you were not in our study, you can go to our website and uh, look at some of these lessons on the seven churches because each of these overcomer promises relate uh, very uniquely to the message that he gave to each church. And the uh, distinct characteristic of Ephesus was that they had left their first love. Very busy for Christ in ministry, but their love for Jesus had diminished. They gave Christ everything except the one thing He wants most. Heartfelt love. Worship. Christianity became more a routine to endure than a relationship to enjoy. And so Jesus commanded them to repent, to return to Him as their first love. And then, as we've noticed last week, He gives every church a command, and then following the command comes the overcomer's promise. So after the command to repent, to return to Me as your first, their first love, the overcomer's promise. And look there in your notes, summing it up, and then I give you the verse, to the overcomer, who loves Christ first and foremost, Christ promises abundant life with him in an an eternal paradise. Revelation 2, verse 7, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And we saw last week that the tree of life is a symbol of eternal life. And this is very, very important. Eternal life is not the mere fact that a believer lives forever in heaven. Eternal life is that we live forever in conscious union and intimacy with Jesus. That's eternal life, that we're with Him as His bride to enjoy an eternal romance with Christ in the very paradise of God. So if I truly believe God exists... And that He rewards those who seek Him. If I have that inner confidence of that future reality, it's going to provide the conviction to live that out. Motivated by my future reward. And certainly, if I'm destined to live with Him forever, to love Him forever in a heavenly paradise, I'm going to start loving Him right now. Amen? Right now. With Him is my first love. My greatest passion, where in my heart he will know no rival. There'll be no refusal of Christ and never any retreat from what he's called me to do. Next, we come to Smyrna. And of course, Smyrna was the severely persecuted church. And you remember, Christ had no rebuke for this church, only a command. And here's the command. Do not fear. 
what you are about to suffer. But be faithful until what? Death. In other words, he didn't promise deliverance to this church. He said there's going to be some of you in this church that are in prison for your faith in Christ. There are others that will actually suffer martyrdom. So his command to them is be faithful. Be faithful in your suffering. Stay true to me and be faithful unto death. Do not deny me. Maintain your love for me. Knowing, again, that future reward that you have with me. And then, following the command, comes the promise. Look there in your notes. To the overcomer who is faithful to Christ in suffering, Christ promises rescue from God's judgment and the reward of the victor's crown. Look at Revelation 2, verses 10 and 11. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He over who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Although a believer may suffer persecution and even martyrdom in this life, they will not suffer damnation in the next. They will receive the victor's crown, which is heaven's medal of honor. So if I truly believe God exists, if I truly believe, have that inner assurance that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, how can I prove the value I place on Jesus by remaining faithful in suffering? Knowing what? My reward in heaven will be great. We come to Pergamum. And sadly, the church of Pergamum, you remember, was in danger of compromise. Uh, false teaching had infiltrated the church, and this false teaching encouraged the believers to compromise their faith to avoid suffering. Remember, we're told that Pergamum, their, their church existed right where Satan had his headquarters. They weren't just in enemy territory, they lived right under the shadow of Satan's headquarters. They were in a tough, tough position. One of their leaders had already been martyred for Christ by the name of Antipas. We're told that. But this false teaching had infiltrated, encouraging them to compromise their faith, lower their standards just a little bit to avoid the suffering, to avoid the persecution. And very specifically, we're told what they were encouraged to do is to participate in pagan feast, which included idolatry and immorality. Christ's command to this church was to remove the false teaching. He says, if you don't remove it, I'm coming to make war with you with the sword of my mouth, with the word of God. Now, following the command comes the overcomer's promise. Notice in your notes to Pergamum, to the overcomer, who walks in uncompromising obedience to God's Word, Christ promises His presence and provision throughout eternity and special recognition in heaven. Look at verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. The essence of Christ's promise is this, and we saw this last week, and that's why I'm not going into great detail. He's saying if you follow me by not compromising with the junk food of this world 
And what I mean by that is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says, if you turn from that to remain faithful to me, I will give you a heavenly feast beyond anything that you can imagine. Forget those pagan feasts. Forget that idolatry. Forget the immorality. I got something really special waiting for you. If you'll just stay true to me. That reference of the hidden manna means we don't even know the half of it yet. Praise God, we've, we've tasted through salvation, Jesus, but he says we haven't tasted him like we're about to taste him in eternity. We'll know his presence and provision there in a much satisfying, a much more fulfilling way. And notice we're also given, and to me this is really exciting, we're also given the white stone with our name written on it. Now, again, a lot of this is, uh, is uh, metaphors that he's using, that he, he's drawing from the customs of that day. And this is alluding to the Roman custom of awarding white stones to victors in athletic contest. And they would actually write the victor's name on the stone, and then that would become his ticket to an awards banquet where he would be honored. And notice, Christ awards the white stone to the one who runs life race to win for Christ. But he also gives him a new name, a name to forever memorialize the victor's character and the work accomplished for Christ here on earth. So if I truly believe God exists, if I truly have that inner assurance that He will reward those who seek Him, that's going to be seen in my life. It's going to be seen as I lay aside every weight. The sin that so easily entangles us to run the race that He set before me, fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. And being faithful to Him every step of that race, every step all the way across the finish line, to hear those words, what? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now the joy of your Lord. And then Him calling me by my new name that memorializes the character His grace produced in me and the work accomplished on earth for His glory. Next, Thyatira. This, of course, was the church guilty of immorality. A woman, uh, Jesus, called Jezebel, a false prophetess, uh, was a member of this church, sadly, And we're told that she literally was leading believers. He says, she's leading my servants astray to commit acts of immorality. And if you remember his message to that church, Jesus very powerfully, very dramatically, he pronounces judgment on Jezebel. He basically was going to take her out because she refused to repent. And he had given her ample time to repent, he says. And then he extends a warning to those who had followed her into the immorality. And he says, you need to repent because if you don't, you're going to suffer the same fate that I brought, I'm going to bring on her. 
And then he gives this simple command. And here it is. Just five little words. Hold fast until I come. Hold fast until I come. The meaning being, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Or to put it another way, turn away from temptation and embrace me. Stay true to me. Remain my devoted bride. And don't be guilty of spiritual adultery, which is the very essence of sin. Because one of the best definitions I can give you of sin that you may not have heard is sin is just simply valuing anything more than your relationship with Christ. If I truly value Him more than anything else in life, I'm going to be ruthless coming against anything that threatens that relationship or my fellowship with Him. So, following the command comes the promise. And look at it there in your notes. To Thyatira, to the overcomer who walks in moral purity and grows in holy character, Christ promises a special position of power and glory in assisting Him to administer His millennial kingdom on earth. Revelation 2, verses 26 through 28, And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Again, I'll put this in the simplest terms I know how to put it. Learn to rule your passions in this life, and you will rule in the next with Christ. That's it. That's what he's saying. Learn to rule your passions in this life, and he's saying, you'll rule with me in the next. Live for my glory in this life, Jesus is saying, and you will share my glory in the next. And as we noted last week, all believers, all believers enter Christ's kingdom Our salvation is secure in Christ. Once caught, there is no escape. So yes, all believers enter Christ's kingdom, but listen, but eternal rank in heaven, the degree to which we reflect God's glory is determined by growth in Christ-like character in this life. So again, all believers enter God's heavenly kingdom. But we will differ in terms of eternal rank. We will differ in terms of our capacity to reflect God's glory. And that difference will be determined on how we grew in Christ-like character here on earth. And that puts us all on equal footing. It's not so much our accomplishments, but it's character. Listen, folks. Character. Character is what counts in heaven. Becoming like Jesus. Learning to love as Jesus loved. So if I truly believe, if I truly believe God is, and that He rewards those who seek Him, well then how can I not turn from all immorality and spiritual adultery and stay true to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Now we come to Sardis. Very sadly, you remember the church that Christ said was what? Dead. 
Sardis, over the years, what happened? They became content to hear God's Word, but not to do God's Word. They did not unite the hearing with God's Word with true faith. They did not apply faith to life. They were deceived. Deceived thinking, just because they knew a lot about God's Word, they knew God personally. But Christ commanded them. He said, you need to wake up to your dead condition. You need to strengthen the few who have spiritual life. And he said there were just a few in the church that truly knew him. And then he says, you need to remember, you need to obey God's word, and you need to repent by turning from your spiritually dead condition to receive eternal life from me. And then comes the overcomer's promise. To the overcomer who applies faith to life, who unites faith to God's word, Christ promises the robe of shining purity and glory that all will see eternal security and divine affirmation. Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Remember, this overcomer's promise is given to a dead church. And they were a dead church because although the members professed Jesus, they did not possess Christ. So this promise is given to lost church members. And he's saying, if you will turn to me in repentance and the obedience of faith, then I'll give you three precious eternal gifts. Number one, everlasting righteousness. Notice he said, he that overcomes shall thus be clothed, what? In white garments. Christ will clothe them in the white garments of his righteousness and purity. As believers, we do not have a righteousness of our own, but only that righteousness of Christ that comes through faith in Christ, that imputed righteousness that's deposited to our account that gives us a right standing before God. And he's saying, if you'll repent of your sickening dead condition, if you'll truly come to me in true salvation... I'll give you everlasting righteousness. I'll give you those white garments. I'll give you my imputed righteousness to give me a right standing with God. And then second, everlasting assurance. He says, I will not erase his name from the book of life. This is one of the clearest promises of eternal security that you ever find. He says, I will not erase your name from the book of life. And then three, everlasting affirmation. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So if I truly believe God is and that he rewards those who seek him, how can I not place my faith in him to secure eternal life? And if you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, that's my appeal to you. Place your faith in him. Place your faith in him and receive these three precious gifts, everlasting righteousness, everlasting assurance, and everlasting affirmation. Next, Philadelphia. Ooh, we all love Philadelphia. This was, this, this was the gym uh, in the seven churches. This in Smyrna. We're told it was a small church. We're actually told by Christ they had very little power. But they surrendered the little bit they had, and Jesus made up the difference. Like he always does when we truly surrender our lives to him. And because of their faithfulness to the Lord, we're told in this message, Christ opened big, 
doors of service for them. Big doors to advance the gospel of Christ. Like Smyrna, there's not a single word of rebuke to this church, only words of encouragement, and then this one command. And here's the command. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take away your crown. And of course, that's not the threat of losing salvation, but yes, we can lose reward. That's very obvious. You see that in the passages on the judgment seat of Christ. When as believers, we will stand before Jesus for either loss of reward or gaining rewards. And yes, if we do not seize the open doors God gives us, if we do not seize the opportunities for service to advance His gospel, to make a stand for Him, there's not loss of salvation, but there is loss of reward. Like we said, there are differing degrees of eternal rank and the capacity to reflect God's glory. The word quickly, when He says, I am coming quickly, that refers to the fact that Christ's return is imminent. In the imminency of, of Christ's return simply means it can happen at any time. Therefore, he's saying, hold fast. Keep on keeping on. Because when I come, there will be a reward for the faithful. That's the simple thought. Now, following the command, the promise. Look to Philadelphia there in your notes. To the overcomer who demonstrates a bold faith to advance the gospel that seizes those opportunities for, that God gives them. Christ promises permanent residence in the heavenly city as one owned by God with eternal citizenship in heaven and completely Christ forever. That's Revelation 3.12, uh, or look at Revelation 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. I love this. I'll make him a pillar. Again, metaphors, allegories, a pillar in the temple of my God because we know there's no temple in heaven Jesus is there present as the one we worship, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Pillars stood for stability. We are told that this church had little power. Down here, they may have been small props for God, but up there they will be strong pillars, strong pillars who possess a place of eternal honor with God. The next expression, and he will not go out from it anymore, is a promise of a permanent place in heaven. Then three names are written on the overcomer which signify ownership. First, the name of the Father is written on the overcomer, signifying we are his adopted children, whom he loves with an everlasting love, a love that will never let us go, a love that will never fail us, but also, of course, a love that won't let us off. It's committed to accomplishing his purposes in and through us. And then, also written on this is the name of the city of God, signifying we have an eternal citizenship in heaven with all the privileges of a citizen of heaven. And then the new name of Christ signifying what? We belong to Jesus forever. Amen. His bride, like we talked about earlier, to live with Him forever in the paradise of God, to reign and rule with Him. So if I truly believe God is and that He rewards those who seek Him, how can I not keep on keeping on knowing when He returns he will reward all 
who seized the opportunities he gave them for service and to boldly advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now the last church, Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Sadly, they were conceited. They were conceited thinking they were spiritually rich. They were complacent in a very smug security, but it was a false spiritual security. And they were blind, we're told, to their Christless condition. Christ is actually portrayed outside the church trying to get into the church. He implores them out of his great love for them to turn to him to know true spiritual riches, true spiritual righteousness, true spiritual revelation. And then he commands them to repent of their sin, to open the door of their hearts, to invite him in, to dine with him, to share fellowship together. And then we have the overcomer's promise. And it's simple, but it's very, very precious. To the overcomer who gives wholehearted surrender to Christ. Christ promises the privilege to rule with him throughout eternity. Revelation 3 verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. For all, listen now, for all who make their hearts Christ home by inviting him in to sit on the throne of their hearts to rule their lives. He says, I promise you that you'll sit with me on my eternal throne to rule with me. So if I truly believe, again, God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him, how can I not give him my wholehearted surrender? Knowing to do so is to rule with him throughout all eternity. Folks, aren't those precious promises? And that's the glorious future that he desires to give us as believers in heaven. You know, this teaching today is probably one of the most neglected in the American church, in the church in the West. You hear very little teaching on future rewards. It's all about now and what God can do for me now. How God can heal me or deliver me or meet this need or that need. We need to understand in much of the Bible, like Smyrna, like the suffering in Pergamum, many of these churches, believers are often called upon to suffer greatly for Christ. We, we, I mean, we saw in previous messages property being confiscated, torture, imprisonment, death. That's still happening in this world. To many believers. And so he gives us this glorious picture of the future. This glorious picture of our future rewards to motivate, motivate us to remain faithful to him now. In the midst of the suffering. In the midst of the trials. In the midst of the tribulations. To realize the most important thing in life. is not to succeed, but to learn Christ-like character. And any success, any success in any realm of life that does not result in Christ-like character is ultimate deceit and failure. 
But despite whatever pain you experience, whatever tragedy, whatever failure from a human perspective, if it produces greater depths of Christ-like character and His love in you, there's the greatest victory. And that's the currency of heaven. Character. So, as we close, as we make the transition to the Lord's Supper, this is all that I need to say. What does Jesus look for in a church? And we saw what he looks for in his message to each of the seven churches. And now that we've discovered what he looks for, these overcomer promises should motivate us to surrender our lives to him and his grace and his power to work in us so that these things are produced in us. What did we learn in Ephesus? He wants to be your first love. He says, I'm worthy of having no rival in your heart. Where you never refuse me. You never retreat from what I've called you to do. What did we learn in Smyrna? He says, I'm looking for faithfulness in suffering. And why? Because you only suffer for that which you value. So when I stay true to Jesus in suffering, in pain, in perplexity, in anguish, that is my greatest opportunity to demonstrate my unfailing love for him. Because he first loved me. What we learn in Pergamon, he's looking for uncompromising obedience to God's word. That I will follow him in obedience regardless of the price and count suffering for him a badge of honor. I won't whine. I'll shine for my Lord because of who he is and what he did. For me, fire tire. What did we learn? Growth in holiness, growth in Christ-like character. Sardis, he's looking for faith applied to life. Us uniting, hearing God's word with faith and obeying God's word. Philadelphia, he's looking for a bold faith to advance the gospel of Christ. That we would live life as individuals in the church, constantly looking for God to open doors, for us to serve others, minister to others, and especially advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share the message of his death, burial, and resurrection that others might come to know him. And then Laodicea, he's looking for wholehearted surrender to Christ, where I submit to his authority to serve his agenda, to seek his approval. It's not about getting your approval, the applause of men. It's about getting heaven's approval. It's not about God serving my agenda, Him being my means to achieve my ends, what I want. But no, I'm His means to achieve His ends, to serve His agenda as I submit to His authority. Let me go ahead and ask the elders, deacons to go ahead and take their places. In just a second, we'll make the transition.